Take your Bibles and open them to Luke chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke chapter 2. And we will begin this morning in verse 39. And we'll finish chapter 2 this morning. Verses 39 through verse 52. And while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. And really, it's the most important question that could ever be asked by humanity that must be asked and answered by humanity. And in fact, this question was asked by our Lord Himself in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. He looks to His disciples and He says, Who do people say that I am? That is the greatest question someone could ever ask in all of creation. Who do people say that Jesus is? From our point of view, the question changes a little bit. We ask, who is Jesus Christ? That question is not only the most important question that anyone could ever ask and answer, it is also a necessary question that every person has to ask and has to answer. Whether they know that or not, who is Jesus Christ? In fact, we know as believers, don't we, that our eternity hinges upon that question alone. Our eternal destination hinges upon the answer we give to the question, who is Jesus Christ? You begin to see even in that how important this question really is, right? What you know about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus, and even what you don't know about Jesus determines your faith. And I've said it before and will always say it, if you get Jesus wrong, you get everything else wrong. But if you get Jesus right, you get your eternity right. And so we have to ask this question, we have to determine the question, who is Jesus Christ? And I believe it was Spurgeon who said he's one of three things. He's either a liar or a lunatic or a Lord. You have to ask and you have to examine what he says and who he claims to be. And you have to determine, is he lying to me? Is everything that he says false? You have to determine, is he crazy? Is he a lunatic? Is he just out of his mind? Or, if he's neither one of those two, then he's true. And what he says about himself is true. That makes him Lord. So who is Christ? Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord of the universe? Unfortunately, and we know this all too well, not everyone can answer that question, who is Jesus Christ? Really for two reasons. One, because there are people who actually do not know anything about Jesus and therefore can't ask who He is. They don't even know Jesus has existed, does exist, have no option to ask that question. But also, there are many people who know Jesus exists. Many people in Weatherford who know Christ exists. They're too blinded by their sin to be able to start anywhere in answering that question. So unfortunately, not everyone can answer that question. And unfortunately, there are people who do answer this question and do not get it right. Churches are full of people who attempt to answer the question of who Jesus Christ really is, but they always totally get it wrong, don't they? Many people around the world have gotten the person of Christ wrong. Many people, Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, will stand before Him 
having totally gotten Jesus wrong. He'll stand before him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all of these things in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you. You never knew me. This question that we ask is vitally important. So I hope there are some of you here this morning who are maybe even curious about who Jesus Christ is because that's what we find. That's what we get to discover in the passage this morning. If you have even an ounce of curiosity about who Jesus is, today you will get the answer. Today we believers will get the answer, be refreshed in the answer. And I want to start off by saying that as we come to this passage and as we examine the person of Christ and as we ask that question, who do people say that Jesus is, who is who is Jesus Christ? We need to know what we'll learn from this passage is that perspective matters. Your perspective on Christ matters. So sometimes your perspective, what you think and how your heart filters a situation, sometimes that filtering, that perspective determines what you know of Christ and determines how you think of Jesus Christ. That's so plain in the passage we're going to look at today. Because we'll find two different people in this passage who will ask two questions. They'll give two statements, but they have two very different outlooks on who Jesus really is. One is right. One is wrong. One is spot on. One is distracted. And we'll see which one you fit into this morning. The passage we come to in Luke chapter 2 is a very unique and a very rare passage of Scripture. In fact, there is no other gospel account that includes anything close to what Luke includes here in verses 39 through 52. As we have pointed out several weeks in a row here, there is not much detail about the early years of the life of Christ. In fact, we can say there's not much information or detail about the majority of Christ's life. All the years before his public ministry, when he's about 30 years old, there's not a whole lot of detail. And in fact, this passage of Scripture here that we're looking at this morning is the only record of Christ and his early childhood past the first couple of years, past when he's older than just a baby. So we've looked and seen in Luke's gospel already. We do have a record of his birth. We do have a record of him being in the temple. That was what we looked at last week with Simeon's wonderful, wonderful testimony. We have a record according to Matthew's gospel of Jesus being threatened to be killed by Herod and him having to flee to Egypt with Joseph and Mary. We have a record of his return back to Israel, his return back to Nazareth. But all of those accounts only total about three or four years of his life. And in all of those accounts, there's not a lot of detail, is there? Not much information is given at all. But Luke does include this rare passage of Scripture here concerning the life of Christ that is actually, I'll admit, almost difficult to understand. It's almost difficult to understand why he would include this. When no other gospel writer does, and when there's so little detail about the early life of Christ, why does Luke, why does God inspire Luke to include this account? Those are the questions we, we need to ask. What makes this story here in Luke 2 
necessary for Scripture. We don't have the other details of the early years of Christ because those details and God's sovereignty and God's providence are not necessary for our salvation. They're not necessary for us to understand God and His person and therefore they're not necessary for Scripture. So we do ask, when there is this rare passage like this, what makes it so necessary for Scripture? What makes it necessary for our salvation? What makes it necessary for us to understand God? Why did Luke include this passage? What is it about this story? When no other writer would have anything remotely close to it, we know Luke does not just haphazardly throw things into his gospel, does he? There's a purpose for everything he's writing about. That's what we've seen already through the whole first and second chapter. There's a purpose in everything that he writes. And even interestingly, even though he includes this passage of Scripture, he doesn't write it like he normally does the other passages. It still lacks a whole lot of detail. And we know Luke is a detailed writer. So what is it about this passage that he would include that the Holy Spirit wants us to know? Even though it's different from the other ones, different from the other Gospels, different from how Luke has been writing. Well, I will admit again, on the surface, it does not seem that this passage has much by way of application or by way of theology or by way of doctrine. You kind of have to do quite a bit of digging to understand really the significance of this passage, although it stares us right in the face, as I hope we'll see. But I will add, although this, this is a unique story of the early life of Christ, it is an extremely important passage of Scripture. This rare glimpse into our Lord's early life, early years, we could say is foundational to understanding the person of Jesus. In fact, let me point out to you, this passage is the first time we see Christ speak. In fact, let me go just a little bit further. This is the first and only record of Christ speaking before His 30th year of life, before His public ministry. There is no other statement that Jesus makes before He enters into His public ministry in chapter 4 there. If you look across the page, He's being tempted. About 18 years have passed between these two moments. 30 years of his life have passed and he gives us one statement in verse 49. You see, up to this point, people have been doing things for Jesus. People have been speaking on behalf of Jesus. People have been testifying to Jesus. But in this passage, this is the first time we see Christ make his own decision. It's the first time we see Christ speak for himself. Thus far, we've looked in... Chapter 1, and we've seen the angels testify, him, testify about Him in verses 31 through 33. Chapter 1, we've seen Elizabeth testify about Him to Mary. We've even seen John the Baptist in his mother's womb leap and testify about Jesus. We've seen Zechariah prophesy about Jesus. We've seen the shepherds have a multitude of angels appear to them who speak about Jesus. We saw last week Simeon's wonderful testimony about 
Jesus, but this is the first time that Christ speaks for Himself. Speaks and testifies to Himself. In fact, you can see a progression here, can't you? We go from one angel prophesying, telling the future to Mary, to then Elizabeth testifying about Him, then John the Baptist testifying about Him, then the priest Zechariah testifying about Him, and then the multitude of angels testify about Him, then the righteous man Simeon testifies about Him, and now the ultimate testimony, Christ Himself will now speak. It's a beautiful, wonderful, foundational passage. The only time He speaks before His public ministry. And it is worth our undevoted attention. You want to know who Jesus is. Listen to the words that come out of His own mouth. What He has to say here in verse 49 is of the utmost importance in understanding who He is. So we don't want to miss this rare glimpse into Jesus' life when He is only 12 years old. And let me just be up front this morning about my goal. I want you to walk away today really experiencing a couple of things. I want you to know clearly who Jesus Christ really is. I want you to be moved to obey Him in this life by knowing who He is. I want you to be awestruck at His dedication to save sinners. In short, I desperately want you to know Jesus. I desperately want you to look into this passage of Scripture with me, walk through it with me, and walk away this morning knowing who Jesus really is. We've heard second-hand testimonies up to this point. Today, we get to hear a first-person testimony of who Christ is. And as an unbeliever, I hope for the first time it clicks in your heart and in your mind who Jesus really is, that He's worth trusting in you. And as a believer, I hope you are refreshed and are made confident in who Christ is, that you can stand upon the assurance of who Jesus really is in this universe. There will be no question this morning concerning our Lord. And there's nothing greater we can give ourselves to than devoting our time to listening to Christ speak about Himself and knowing who Jesus really is. So look with me here in Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read the passage. And then we're going to come back and we're going to run through the passage. So look in Luke 2 verse 39. Luke reports and says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Fast forward several years, verse 41. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. We begin there with verses 39 and 40. And really, these are just some background verses that Luke's giving us, some transitional verses to get us from the time in the temple with Christ to now Jesus being 12 years old. And so they're fitting transitional verses because really what he says in verses 39 and 40, he fleshes out in verses 41 through 52. And so these are very good transitional, very good background verses, but they are written like the other gospel writers in such a matter of fact kind of way. We need to understand these two verses cover many, many years of the life of Christ. Really about Eight, nine, ten, even eleven years of the life of Christ are summarized in verses 39 and 40. They're summary verses. Luke here does not tell about the threat of Herod to kill Jesus. Luke doesn't report about the flight to Egypt and then the living in Egypt and then the return to, to Nazareth. He just writes verse 49 and verse 40. Jesus grew up. Probably because Luke's gospel was written after Matthew's gospel, which records those accounts. And Luke would have known that his readers would have read Matthew's gospel, which was already widely circulated at this time. And so Luke understands Matthew's account would have filled in the gaps for his readers. And Luke here, strangely enough, isn't concerned with the chronological aspects of Christ's life, although he has been up to this point. Here, he's more concerned with stressing that familiar point that he's been stressing all along in these first two chapters. Mary, Joseph, and Jesus had performed everything according to the law of the Lord. That's what Luke is wanting to get across. It's the theme of what theologians call imputation. That Christ has fulfilled the law for us who could not fulfill the law so that when He died on the cross, He would apply His righteous work of the law to us who cannot fulfill the law. So that is imputation. That's the theme that Luke is trying to get across to us that Christ has been the complete substitute and the adequate sacrifice by keeping what we could not keep for us. That's what he's summarizing in verse 39. So we're not concerned with the flight to Egypt. We're not concerned with um, the chronological aspects of the early years of Christ. We're concerned with Jesus as still keeping everything according to the law of the Lord. Verse 40 is even more general than verse 39. He's concerned with the general growth of Christ and includes even less detail. He just simply states that Jesus 
advanced as a human, advanced as the Messiah, and had the favor of God upon him. He grew up. That's all Luke has to report to us. It's the typical development of a normal child. And it's interesting here that he would add, unlike any other child in Israel, the favor of God's upon him. The only other child that that could possibly be said of is John the Baptist, who had the Holy Spirit from birth. But it is definitely true of our Lord Jesus. And really, we don't need to know anything else about the early, early years of Christ. This is enough. We don't need to know about the de- development, developmental years of Christ, the crucial years of, of His life. All we need to know is that in those developmental years, those crucial years, the favor of God's upon Him. So there's no record of His first birthday, no record of losing His first tooth, no record of His t-ball games or anything like that. Just the favor of God's upon Him. And that's enough. That's enough for us. It's a natural depiction of a natural, normal human child growing up just as Christ did. God's eyes upon Him. God's protecting Him. God's guiding Him, watching over Him. On and on down the list. That's Luke's transition into the story today in verse 41 is where it begins. And really, verse 41 through 52 begins to explain why the favor of God is upon him. That's important in understanding the person of Christ. So now let's enter into this account that is primarily concerned with who Jesus is, primarily concerned with who this 12-year-old boy is there in verse 41. And again, it all matters your perspective. That's what we see. Your perspective, your approach, how you come, how you look at Christ matters what you know of Him. So the first thing we see here in the passage, and really the majority of the verses are dedicated to this point, we look at Mary's humanly perspective. Mary's humanly perspective. Verses 41 through verse 48, and add to that verse 50. So Luke gives us a little bit here about Mary, setting up his story, reminding us the kind of person that Mary is. Verse 41, Mary has a heart of obedience to God and a heart of faithfulness to His law. Again, a thing, a, the same theme stressed over again. His parents went up to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. That's meant to remind us of their faithfulness to God. But I will add one side note here that's rather intriguing. Just as when Mary was in the temple in verses 21-24, through 24, and she's offering a sacrifice for her purification, and we pointed out She's sacrificing and doing the rites of purification all the while she holds the one in her arms who's the ultimate purification, who's the ultimate sacrifice for her sins. That same thought is seen here in verse 41. She travels to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover where God took lambs and passed over the firstborn all the while she takes with her the final Passover of God. You see here in in a few years, 21 years, Christ will enter into Jerusalem again for the Passover. But that time, He'll be the Lamb sacrificed on the cross. There's an interesting parallel here. But again, that's not what Luke is getting at. He's stressing yet again the faithfulness of Mary and Joseph. They are God-fearing people. They are God-honoring people. Every year, they travel some 60 miles south to Jerusalem just to obey God. 
the world would look at that and say, what kind of vacation is that? You're vacationing to a church service? Mary and Joseph are God-honoring, God-fearing people. In short, Mary and Joseph are great parents. This is the example of parenthood. Raise your children up in the way of the Lord. Teach them to obey God, to fear God, to honor God, to devote their lives to God. Mary and Joseph are great, great parents. And here in verse 42, we see Jesus is 12 years old and they're going up again for the Passover. They're taking their firstborn son, all their other children with them and raising him up in the way of the Lord. They stay in Jerusalem, verse 43, until the feast is ended. That's about seven to ten days that they've been in Jerusalem now. So a full week, maybe even a little over a full week or a couple of weeks that they've spent in Jerusalem here. And they decide to leave. But when they decide to leave, verse 43, the boy Jesus decides to stay. He's remaining behind in Jerusalem. And I do need to point out that this is not an act of disobedience or rebellion on behalf of Jesus, right? And it's not like Jesus is running away from his parents. Remember, he's got great parents, and he knows that. No, what we see today is that Jesus is performing a very, very specific act for a very, very specific reason. He knows exactly who he is and what he's doing. He may not know all the full details of his mission on earth yet at this point. And the only reason I say that is because verse 52 indicates that he increased in wisdom. Something we'll talk about here in just a moment. But at this point in time, he very much knows who he is and what he's doing. And so he remains behind, not in an act of disobedience and not in an act of rebellion. But in a very specific way to teach his parents something and in turn teach us something. So they suppose he's in the group. Verse 44. And they go a day's journey without him. And, and I also need to point out a couple of things here. It was very common for them to travel in a group. Especially from Galilee, from Nazareth. All the people who are leaving Galilee, Galilee and, and leaving Nazareth that want to go to the feast would travel together. And so that was common. That's what they did. And it wasn't uncommon for these groups to travel in other subgroups. What I mean is that a lot of the times the children would travel together and the women would travel together and the men would travel together. And that's not by law or any custom. That's simply by choice. They enjoyed talking. They enjoyed walking together. So most accounts have them traveling in ways like that. And most likely, Jesus, being a normal human boy, was simply playing with his friends. On the way down to Jerusalem, he's hanging out with his friends. He's hanging out with his, his friends' family members. He's enjoying the company of his friends. Mary and Joseph likely suppose he was doing that on the way back to Nazareth. And so we cannot contribute here when Mary and Joseph leave Jesus behind. We cannot contribute to them poor parenting. In fact, it was very easy for Jesus to get lost. And in fact, we do the same thing today, don't we? We're in a group of people and we suppose our child to be with the other parent, the other spouse. Or we suppose our child to be at their friend's house with their friends. We do the same thing today. In fact, 
when I was studying this week and typically when I read this passage, this is true. I remember a story of my childhood. Um, Every time my mom took me to the grocery store, I would get lost. And we didn't have a big grocery store. It wasn't like Walmart. We had a United that was smaller than the United here. And every time I would wander off from my mom and get lost in this small grocery store. One time specifically, I can remember sitting in the shelf next to the pickles, hearing my name called over the intercom, Skylar, your mom's ready to leave. And finding my way back to the front of the store and finding my mom and going home. That, That was a typical shopping experience with me. Now, in no way in that moment did my mom lose me. She knew I was in the building. She knew the people of the store knew who I was and wouldn't let me wander out the door. She knew I couldn't find the door. And so there was no moment of my mom losing me in that experience. She had a benefit that Mary and Joseph didn't have. She had a, she had a PA system that could call me back. But she wasn't concerned or worried. And much the same with Mary and Joseph in this instance. Jesus is just in the group. It's common. That's normal. They're normal parents. They're not worried yet. Verse 45 and 44. They begin to look for him after a day's journey. The group's settling down. The family units are coming back together. They're probably going to eat, probably getting ready for bed. And we cannot find Jesus. He's not among our relatives. He's not among our friends, our acquaintances. They look for him and they cannot find Jesus him and i want you for a moment to imagine the sheer panic in mary and joseph we have lost the son of god this is a different experience for them it is a tremendous blessing to raise a perfect child some of you know that it's a tremendous blessing to raise a perfect child But when you make a mistake with a perfect child, your stress is elevated significantly. We have lost God's salvation. I I cannot find the consolation of Israel. The redemption of Jerusalem is missing. Mary and Joseph are in a moment of panic. They can't find Jesus. So immediately they return back to Jerusalem and they're searching for him and they're searching for him diligently. And you notice verse 46. It's been three days before they find him. A day leaving Jerusalem, a day getting back to Jerusalem and then finding him on the third day. So not only did they lose Jesus, the son of God, they lost him for three days. You can imagine the pounding heart of his mother. What have I done? One mission, one purpose, and I have lost Jesus. I imagine Mary felt the same panic that the disciples felt when Jesus was buried for three days. God is dead, gone. What now? We've lost Him. They've taken Him from us. In fact, Luke tells us one of two times at the end of verse 51, Mary 
His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. She probably, when Christ died, remembered this story. That's speculation. But she could have remembered this story. I remember when he went missing for three days when he was a child. But just like Christ would be resurrected after the three days from his death, so too he'd be found in these three days. And when Mary and Joseph find him, they are astonished at how they find him. They find him in the temple. And they find him sitting with the teachers, sitting with the scholars of the temple. Those people who were to study, devote their lives to studying the Old Testament inside and out so that they could teach it and know all that God would want. These people who had probably memorized the whole Old Testament. Jesus is sitting there with them. And he's not just sitting there with them. He's engaging in discussion with them. This is not a common scene. The 12 year old boy typically doesn't sit with the scholars and most definitely does not engage the scholars in general, vivid discussion. But I must point out here, this 12-year-old boy, Jesus, has more right to be in the temple than any of the scholars that are there. And so he engages with them. And the scholars, the teachers, they're amazed. All who heard him, verse 7, are amazed at his understanding. They're amazed at his answers. Amazed that he knows so much about God and knows so much about the Scriptures. That's something we're going to get to see later in Jesus' life in the Sermon on the Mount. He has a keen understanding of the Old Testament. Why not? It's his. Here in verse 47, we see a glimpse of his deity that should have... Let me add, should have corrected Mary's thinking. That should have jolted her heart back to what is right. It should have reminded her of who her son was, but it, it doesn't. But this verse 47 is what Luke has already described in verse 40. He's filled with wisdom. He knows God's word. But other people don't know that. So he's astonishing them. He's amazed Amazing, these people. And even Mary and Joseph, verse 48, they're astonished by Him. They're amazed by Him. As they stumble into the temple, breathing heavy in panic, they're amazed. But their astonishment is short-lived. Mary's panic bursts out of her. And this is really what we are trying to get to this morning. What Mary has to say in verse 48. She looks at him. And says to him. Son. Why have you treated us so? We've been looking for you. We've been searching for you. And we've been looking for you in great, great distress. Why did you cause this distress upon us? Mary. Is distracted. This statement by her, this question in this statement will be paralleled with Jesus' question and statement in verse 49, but it reveals the filter of Mary's heart, doesn't it? It shows that her panic is what is producing her thinking. In her panic, she's looking at Jesus from a humanly perspective. It shows that she is in a state of worry and that her state of worry has blinded her 
from reality. She uses words such as distress with Jesus. Causing distress upon me. She's distracted. I want you to notice the relational aspect in Mary's statements. She calls him son. You're, you're my son. That's going to change. And Jesus is going to indicate that change in relationship there. But nonetheless, the relational aspect is still there. And it's the relational aspect itself that highlights that Mary's thinking from a human perspective towards Jesus at the moment. You're my son, and you've run away from me. Why, my son, have you caused this distress upon me? She's forgetting this child in the temple is more than her son. He's God's son. He's the one that gets David's throne. He is that consolation of Israel. I want you to notice also, kind of what I've subtly been pointing out here, Mary attributes the cause of her distress to Jesus and ask him, why are you treating me this way? That means something. It means that she has forgotten that her son is holy and sinless. Isn't it? First Peter 2.22, he, he has no sin in him. He has not ever disobeyed. In these 12 years up to this point, I've never once done something wrong. I've never once not submitted to you. I've never once disobeyed you. Yet in this moment, Mary is distracted and says, why have you done this? She's forgetting her son is holy and sinless. And so we need to understand here, what Jesus did is not wrong. Somehow Mary's perceiving it wrong. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly how he wanted his earthly parents to experience this moment. Mary's heart, however, is so clouded by her frustration. She forgets Jesus is here on earth for a specific reason. It's more than just being my son and doing what I say. You see, Mary knew Jesus better than anybody else, didn't she? However, she was overtaken in this earthly, humanly way to the point of forgetting who her son was. She knew the testimony of Gabriel. She knew and could remember the testimony of Elizabeth, John the Baptist. She would have known the testimony of Zachariah. She would have known the testimony of the shepherds talking about the multitude of angels. She would have just heard Simeon's wonderful, marvelous testimony in the temple. And although she heard these things, been about 10 years and she's forgotten them in a moment. She looks at all these things from her perspective, from her humanly perspective. And let me just say, a humanly perspective has a hard time seeing the divine and seeing it correctly. We can understand Mary's panic, right? You can understand her, her worry. If you're a mother or a father, you get it totally. But we have to also understand it's her worry and her panic that's blinding her. It's her lack of trust in her 12-year-old son. And I admit that's difficult. None of us trust our 12-year-old sons. 
But Mary should have. Mary's got a different child. Her humanly perspective was blinding her so that she didn't trust Jesus. And a humanly perspective, I'll say it again, has a hard time seeing the divine and seeing it correctly. You look in verse 50, after Jesus is about to speak, she still doesn't get it. Still doesn't understand what he's saying. I want to say here this morning that the same thing is absolutely true of us still today, isn't it? We attempt to look at God through a humanly perspective. We see life and we see God only through the lens of our own humanly eyes. Thus, you hear this statement all the time, we fit God into a box. We limit Him based upon what we see of Him through our own hearts. And God is so much bigger than what we perceive of Him. And this humanly perspective, I, I want to point out, cripples the church and cripples the believer in three particular ways. One, it causes us to forget about God's high standard and God's hatred of sin. And that is seen in our lax approach towards holiness and purity, isn't it? When was the last time you and your heart can say that you consciously, intentionally did something for the sake of holiness. When was the last time you sat down and spent even five minutes praying specifically for your holiness? We don't think in terms of holiness and purity. We don't think in terms of obedience. We're conditioned to think in terms of love and forgiveness. Our lacks view and our lax practices towards holiness and obedience proves that we sometimes forget about God's high standard that he set and God's absolute hatred towards sin. I put in my notes here that we treat sin like a fail and try again game show. That's okay, God's going to forgive me. Scripture warns us of the reality of sin. Praise God that He would forgive us. But do not presume upon the kindness of God. We need to see sin as God sees sin. Something that is punishable by what? Death. Punishable by what? Eternity in hell. Wrap your mind around it just for a moment. There is going to be a day where every single person stands before God. And if you get Jesus wrong, and if you are found still in your sin, you are in a moment cast into a, an eternity of hell enduring the full wrath of God with no relief for a millisecond. And in that moment, there is no fail and try again. There is no reset. There is eternity. We don't think that way because we don't think of God's high standard and God's hatred of sin. We don't think that way. Praise God, just a side note here, praise God that He would save us, that He would give us grace. We don't have to worry about being good enough, trying to do enough. We trust simply in the grace of Christ, believe upon the Son of God and are saved and forgiven. 
How grateful should we be about that? Because when we look at God's idea of sin through our own eyes, we forget to see the gravity of it. Pray that we would see sin as God sees sin. But because we don't, people don't repent, people mock God, and Christians live immoral lives. When we look at God through a humanly perspective, we forget about God's high standard and hatred of sin. Let me run through the, the rest of these. When we look at life and live life and look at God through a humanly perspective, we forget about the depths of God's love and forgiveness. And that is seen in the idea of having to do enough and be enough and, and do enough good works to earn God's pleasure and earn God, God's favor. I've messed up. I've sinned. I'm understanding now the seriousness of sin. So what do I got to do? What do I got to do? How many good works do I have to do to for, forgive all those things? How many good works do I have to do to make God happy with me? When we look at sin like that and look at God like that, we forget that God loves us deeply and God's forgiveness is deep and He sent His Son to provide that kind of forgiveness. Our theology may not believe that good works earn God's favor, but our practices do, don't they? Our actions do. Am I doing enough? Am I being enough? Would God be happy with me? When you look at God from a humanly perspective, just like Mary was distracted by Jesus, we're distracted by the love of Jesus. And when we look at God from a humanly perspective, number three, we forget about who our Lord actually is. That's seen by the countless numbers of churchgoers who have no idea who Jesus really is. And that's seen by the countless of churchgoers who fashion in their own mind their own version of Jesus that is foreign to Scripture. How tragic of a thought would it be to stand before God and having spent your 80 years of life worshiping a Jesus you fashioned in your own mind that is not the Jesus of Scripture. I've witnessed that firsthand. Teaching on a passage of Scripture such as this, hearing Christ speak in a passage of Scripture, and hearing another person say to me, my God wouldn't do that or say that. Wait a second here. Listen to what you're saying. I've heard people say that. That's not what I believe about Jesus. You can't pick and choose about Scripture. You have to get Jesus right. You cannot get Him wrong so it's a it's a dangerous thing church to interpret god through your own understanding instead of letting your understanding be interpreted by god that's why we go through luke verse by verse that's why we wanted to dedicate ourselves to the most detailed and longest gospel so that we can know who christ is and thank god we have his word so that we can know who he is see the warning in mary's actions do not approach god from your own evil human perspective Look to Scripture to find out who God is. And so, with that being said, let's look to Scripture to find out who God is. Verse 49. We have a natural question now. The question Mary is implying to Jesus. What do you have to say for yourself? You've, you've treated us this way. What do you have to say for yourself? Since we're running short on time, let me just skip all my notes here. and let, Let's get with it. Look at Christ's heavenly perspective now. Mary's humanly perspective distracted her from knowing who Jesus is, but Christ's heavenly perspective 
gets his person spot on. He looks at her and says, why were you looking for me? That's such a strange question to ask, isn't it? It's obvious, isn't it, Jesus? You're 12 and you went missing for three days and you're kind of an important person. But he says to Mary, why, why are you looking for me? And he's doing something with that question. He's not highlighting Mary's question and statement. He's trying to actually drive home a point to Mary. And his point is his next question. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Why is this a surprise to you? Why are you astonished? Why are you amazed? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Notice there, he says, did you not know? That implies that you should have known. In fact, you must know, Mary. It's absurd that you didn't know. And then he says, I must be in my father's house. This is what my whole life is about. My whole life's dedicated to God. My whole life's built up in God. My will and the father's will, they're one will. They're not separated. I have to be doing these things. But here's the gist, and here's the whole reason this passage is included into Scripture. Jesus says, I must be in what? My Father's house. That's a perfect response. Beautiful response. For the first time, the only time we see Jesus speak in the first 30 years of His life, and He nails the nail on the head. I'm in my Father's house. Let's, let's put this in perspective here for us. He is standing in the glory of the temple. The epicenter of God's presence. Sur surrounded by the shining, glimmering gold. The noise of the priests doing their rituals. The presence of the sacrificial lambs all around Him. The scholars studying. And Jesus says, this, all of this is my Father's house. That's not said in Israel. Jesus is saying several things with that. He's making himself divine with that statement. Let me also add, some of your Bibles may have this translation in it. Older versions do. They'll add to that or put a footnote maybe at the bottom that I'll be in my father's house or I must be about my father's work. They communicate the same thing there. And Jesus is communicating something with that. He's making Himself divine. Since God is my Father and I am His Son, we are of the same substance. We are one. I come from Him. It's coming out of the mouth of a 12-year-old boy. I am Lord of all the earth. This is actually my temple. This is my glory. That's the second thing He's doing. He's making Himself equal with the Father just as a son is equal with his Father, so too Christ is equal with the Father, equal in all, all respects as regards the Father. I put a note here, all that we attribute to God, we must and can attribute to Jesus. It changes the way you relate to Christ, doesn't it? You humble yourselves before Him. You honor Him. If Jesus is a liar, dismiss this statement. If He's a lunatic, dismiss this statement. But if He's Lord, He's calling Himself God. If He even speaks on behalf of God, He's calling Himself God. I am equal to the Father. John chapter 5, verse 18, that's why the Jews are trying to kill Him. Not only because He performs works on the Sabbath, but because He calls God His Father, making Himself equal with God. John five eighteen. They kill Him. Want to kill Him for this statement. 
that he'll make in about 18 years. But he makes it here as a 12-year-old. And he makes himself not only equal with the father, but heir of God. As a son inherits from his father, so too does Jesus have an inheritance from God. Essentially, all that belongs to God belongs to me as his divine equal son. The gold of this temple, all the sacrificial lambs, all these priests render service to me. All the law, Mary and Joseph, that you have been prescribing to, it's my law. I am the son of the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the son of the God of the promised land, the God of Moses, the God of the Exodus, the God of the law that you are fearing, the God of David, the God of the nation of Israel. I am the son of the God of the universe, the almighty God that you fear. That's how Mary and Joseph would have understood this statement. That's who I belong to. So in this one sweeping and one striking statement as a 12-year-old boy to his mother in the temple, Jesus teaches us something. We learn that He is the plain, clear Son of the Most High God who is dedicated to the will of the Father in His entire life. Did you not know? It's so plain, it's so clear, Mary. I'm the Son of God. And that's who I am from young to old, from birth to death. All about God. Let's wrap up here real quick. I thank you so much for being patient with me, but I I want to get to this. We've looked at Mary's humanly perspective. We've looked at Christ's heavenly perspective. Now let's look at Christ's humility and wrap it up. He returns submissive. Verse 51. Is that not just amazing? Does that not strike anybody else? I'm, I'm God's son. This temple is mine. I'm about my Father's work in my Father's house. I am divine and equal to God. But I'll listen to you, Mary. I'll go back to Nazareth. Submissive. Quiet. And then in verse 52, he grows in multiple ways. Stressing his humanity. It's an odd thought that Jesus could increase in wisdom and in stature and could increase with favor. With God and man, that's an odd thought, but Luke is stressing his humanity there. So in this one passage, this one rare and unique passage, we find coming together the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. So you want to know the person of Jesus? Who is Jesus? He's the God-man. God becoming man for us. Keeping the law perfectly being about his father's business, the rightful heir, the rightful owner of all things. And he is in his humanity and in his deity in such a way for us to be our sacrifice. Jesus became the God-man for you. That's who he is. You can't deny his humanity and still know him fully. You can't deny his deity and still know him fully. To know Jesus is to know humanity and deity in one. I am Son of God. So what do we learn from this passage? In closing, we learn that a heavenly perspective is the only right way to understand the person of Jesus. Number one, a heavenly perspective is the only right way to understand the person of Jesus. So we cannot try to confine him to our humanly perspectives because that distorts ultimately who he is and distracts us 
from the full picture of who he is and keeps us from understanding him completely. That's why so many people get him wrong. They want to fit him into their mind. The heavenly perspective. Set your minds on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 1 through 3. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3. Heavenly perspective. Only right way to know Jesus. Second, we learn that Jesus cares about our salvation. Again, it's a beautiful passage here laying out both the humanity and deity of Jesus, which is ultimately for our atonement so that he could be our sacrifice. Adequate sacrifice. Thirdly, we learn that Jesus' heart is all about the Father's work. Could have gone back to Nazareth, to home. Could have gone back with his friends. Wouldn't have sinned in that way. But his life constrains him to be obedient to the Father because the Father's will is his will. He delights in the mission of God, delights in the obedience of God. You want to know the heart of our Savior? It's found in doing God's work. Thirdly, or fourthly, and we'll close with this, we learn that Jesus is strong enough to save and worthy to obey. If what he says is true, then when we read that this child goes to the cross, we have no doubt that his work is sufficient. If what he says in verse 49 is true, your whole life better be about honoring and obeying him. Your whole life better be given to him. If he's really the son of God and he really came to die for you, how dare us ever scorn him? Everything about me better be dedicated to him. He is God. He is our God, our Lord, our Savior. Church, we find a wonderful passage here of who Christ is. And He's strong enough to save you, unbeliever. And He's worthy enough for your devotion, believer. It's coming out of His 12-year-old mouth, but it's still true today, right? Surrender your life to Him as Lord and Savior. Surrender your life to Him as the one who will direct every step you take. This is Jesus. More than a man. More than a child. This is our Savior. Our Lord. God, we thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for these people being patient to hear Your Word this morning, God. Being patient to listen to the Scriptures. Lord, I have no power in and of myself. Nothing at all. All I can do is lay your word out there. We trust you with the results. We pray that you pierce the hearts of the lost, that they will come down this morning and visit with me and be saved, repent of their sins, believe and trust in you for salvation. Pray that people would be awakened this morning, that this word of yours may be an impacting seed into their soul that will sprout into the fruit of salvation. And for believers this morning, I pray we would repent of all the times we neglect you and neglect your greatness and we would trust again, be refreshed again in who you are. Thank you for this time. In your name, Jesus. Amen.